0: Locked On Dolphins, hosted by Travis Wingfield. Your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphins. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. I'm in town to play the Dolphins, you dumbass. What's up, Dolphins? And welcome in to the Monday, August the 20th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I'm here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, I concocted a theory on the Dolphins' first team snap counts from Friday night's game, debunked some deep passing game numbers as well as red zone passing myths I dissect the Dolphins' identity and where it could go wrong, as well as break down the second half of Friday's game. But first, I kindly invite each and every one of you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a five-star review. Give me a follow on Twitter, at NFL, Follow the show at LockedOnFins. And check out LockedOnDolphins.com. And of course, last but not least, the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts like the Locked On Heat podcast and Locked On NFL podcast for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. No Mad Dog today. Let's get right into it. That's another Miami Dolphins. And the opening item on the agenda for this podcast is in concert with a piece up on LockedOnDolphins.com right now, written by by yours truly, titled Two Critical Components Threatening to Derail Miami's Identity. And just before we get into that, something that coincides with that idea is the starting offense playing 29 reps on Friday night in Carolina against the Panthers. That's a ton of reps for a first-team offense in a preseason game, the second preseason game. That's really what you'd expect to see from them in game number three as they start to game plan and prepare for the actual season itself. But the Dolphins do it in game two. And my theory on that, and this goes in line with my identity idea, and we'll get to that here in a second, my theory is that Gaze wanted those guys out there getting reps simply for conditioning reasons. And the reason I say that is because those screen passes on those last two drives were even like a third and five. They ran a little flat route, flare route, whatever you want to call it, to Albert Wilson that really had no chance of getting to, of moving the sticks and getting a first down. And yeah, that caused an uproar on Twitter and all the, all the things that fans get excited about during this time of year. It, it looked bad for that reason, but I almost felt like he wanted to get the offensive line Running and pulling and getting out in space. Why aren't the receivers getting their blocking in? Because nothing will measure your conditioning like blocking another person, and especially for an offensive line, getting out in space and getting their legs going and getting them ready for that Miami Heat come September. Because if you're going to be an up tempo offense and you're going to do it in South Florida Heat down in September, we can't have guys with hands on their hips in the fourth quarter. They have to be ready from the opening gun, especially given Miami's schedule leaning towards a more favorable early slate. what it is in December on the back end. So back to the column up on LockedOnDolphins.com. The premise of that article revolves around the idea that the Dolphins built an identity based on two component elements. The up-tempo offense we talked about with a controlled passing game designed to wear down a defense and light up the scoreboard to the tune of 27-28 points per game, a good figure in the NFL, and to complement that, an unrelenting pass rush that makes comebacks impossible. Get a two-score lead unleash that pass rush and just go at teams and make it very, very difficult for them to get back into football games. And I love that plan, especially playing down in Miami where the Heat is your biggest advantage. The plan on the surface looks good. If you can execute it, it is a wise strategy in today's NFL that is so dependent on the passing game and affecting the opponent's passing game. It just makes total sense, especially with Adam Gaze and what his offenses have been in his past in Denver and in Chicago as well. So he has a track record of getting that stuff done. Hopefully he can do it here in Miami. But there are two things that keep popping up and they've been here under Adam Gaze during his two years in the big chair in charge of this team. And those two things are penalties on the offensive side of the football and run defense. And you look at what those two things can do to a football team trying to execute this game plan, a short controlled passing attack that relies on being in manageable manageable down in distances. And you just look at the NFL average for third and seven plus compared to third and three or less. The Conversion rate on third down literally doubles when you're in that short yardage situation because defenses can't key on certain things. They can't sit back. You can run rub routes. Everything that goes into that, it's much, much harder to convert. When it's third long, a pretty much given idea, but I feel like it bears repeating on the podcast, on Twitter, and everywhere else Dolphins fans reside. And that first element is really reflective upon the second element in those offensive penalties having a direct result on the defense defense. And you look at what Adam Gay's, his teams have been the first two years in the league, 31st in penalties both seasons in terms of offensive penalties. That just has to get better. And you look at what the impact was in the preseason games. You go back to Friday night. Laramie Tunzel has a holding call on a second and goal from the six. Tannehill gets the ball off, gets three yards on the play, sets up a third and goal from the three, but the hold pushes him back to second and 16 or second and goal from the 16. Almost an unobtainable down a distance in an NFL offense. And then you go back to the first possession of the game, Jesse Davis gets hit with a hold right around midfield or so. And that comes after the Dolphins picked up 29 yards on their first four plays of the game. You go back to the first series of the opener in Tampa Bay, Jawan James, same thing, holding on the outside after the Dolphins get to midfield on three plays. And then again, back in the Carolina game, the Dolphins have a first and 10 after a completion to AJ Derby down to the Carolina 17 yard line but he pushes off past interference. Now it's second and 20 at the Carolina 42, a huge difference in yardage and way behind the chains. And I'm not s- not saying that, you know, Tannehill is completely incapable of overcoming those long down distances, but this offense is predicated on getting open early, pass protecting for two and a half seconds, getting the football out and keeping the chains moving that way and getting teams tired with their hands on their hips. And because of that and the ability to score points and to re- wear down the defense They get behind in the scoreboard and they have to start passing and you can release this unrelenting pass rush in Robert Quinn, Cameron Wake, William Hayes, Charles Harris. All these guys can have their biggest impact on the field and not get the run defense in a position where they have to suddenly become stout and perform at a level they're just not capable of doing, as we have seen through two preseason games. So those penalties directly impact the run defense, and if you have to rely on those two aspects, offensive penalties and the run defense being solid, that plan's not going to work. You're going to put Quinn, Wake, Harris, those guys on the sideline as the team tries to defend the running game with their piss-poor linebackers, their mediocre defensive tackles. So the plan is solid, but you have to find a way to make it work, and if you're going to make it work, you have to cut the penalties out. And if they can get that corrected, there is no doubt in my mind they will be a playoff team, no doubt whatsoever. But if not, we're looking at another classic Dolphins 7-9, 8-8 eight eight type of season where we're just on the cusp but not quite good enough. And that's not going to be good enough in Adam Gaze's third year. All right, we're going to get into the second half of Friday's game and talk about the stars and the, well, not-so-starry players from Friday's game at the Carolina Panthers. We'll do that next the Locked On Dolphins podcast at Winkle NFL at Locked On Fins. Rolling into segment number two on the Monday, August the 20th edition of the Locked on Dolphins podcast. And I didn't give a very comprehensive report on the Dolphins' second half of the game on Friday against the Carolina Panthers. So I wanted to dip into a couple of positives and negatives from that game. We're going to start with the two negatives that I have written down after a rewatch of that second half. And the first one is Cordrea Tankersley. And I'm left wondering what the hell happened to that guy. He's showing physical limitations in the game. He looks timid, not wanting to tackle anybody. Something that I actually saw on his tape at Clemson that was a concern in his inability to tackle on the outside and the seemingly weekly communication and mental lapses that result in big plays against him. He looks totally lost. He has easily conceded his job as the possible second, third, whatever, cornerback on the outside to Tory McTire. And as the cornerback group continues to, devol- to develop, it looks like it's much more thin than we originally had thought. So that's a bit of a concern going forward. Other w- player that was really concerning on Friday night, Isaac Asiata. I give him praise. He was actually in the arrow up column after his performance against Tampa Bay in game number one. And I talked about him on the Saturday podcast. And if you guys want a comprehensive review of the first team, the first half of that game, head back and check out the special Saturday episode of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. But getting into his second half performance... He looked like the same out-of-control, no technique, total disaster that he was as a rookie, and he also had two holding calls in that second half. Oof, that's not going to cut it for the big man. He really has to play better if he wants to make this 53-man roster. Let's go ahead and get more positive now, talk about some guys that stood out in a positive way in the game on Friday. Maurice Smith, the safety, I talked about on the podcast again on Saturday that Yeah, he looks very good, but he's caught up in a numbers game behind McDonald, Jones, and Fitzpatrick as far as the safeties go. And you might even have Walt Aikens in there considering where he is as a cornerback or safety. But he had the highest grade on the defensive side of the ball, Murray Smith did. According to Pro Football Focus, he was flying all over the field, looked very fast, looked very quick, looked very instinctive, and he had a nose for the football, which obviously was apparent on his interception that he had down around the Panthers' goal line. Up next, Durham Smythe, the tight end, the rookie tight end. I thought he was good in blocking with limited time with the first team in that first half. He had a very nice block coming down across the line, crashing that line, so to speak, on Kenyon Drake's big run. But he also showed some work as a pass catcher in the second half, something we didn't see very much from him at Notre Dame I think he has a shot to make a 12 personnel pair of rookies with other rookie tight end Mike Gusecki at some point this season maybe not right away but down the line as we get closer to maybe Halloween Thanksgiving those certain benchmarks of the season he could possibly be a bigger impact player as we go along with things And speaking of having an impact on the roster, Bryce Petty, I hate to say this because I have really trashed on him throughout his whole entire career. He has been by far the most impressive of the quote-unquote other three quarterbacks. And I thought, like I said, I thought his game in New York was total trash, just didn't have the arm strength, didn't have the timing anticipation, was throwing into big windows at Baylor, couldn't do it in the NFL, but he might have a say for this backup gig if he continues at this current pace he's on right now. And I doubt the backup guys will get a lot of run in game number three as they prepare Tannehill to start the season. But I I would be pretty surprised if Bryce Petty wasn't the first one off the bench in that contest. Other fellow rookie that I thought was very good, Buddy Howell, the undrafted free agent out of FAU, his second consecutive game where he ran the ball hard, and you can just see it with some of these running backs that they will get the most out of every run. They'll squeeze every yard out of it possible, and I think he's one of those guys. I'm hoping he can get stashed on the practice squad this year and possibly have an impact come 2019 because I think he has the makings of like a third-down NFL-type back that could have an impact in the league. Also, Jalen Davis, another undrafted rookie out of Utah State. I think he's got a real shot in making this team after what he has shown through two preseason games, has a chance to make the team outright, serving as a special teamer and a backup slot corner because he might be the best option behind Fitzpatrick and McCain, and he has certainly bitten as a pup so far early on this preseason. And another concern going back in the other direction was just the coaching staff in general. And there was a quote from linebackers coach Frank Bush, and it came in an Armando Salguero article, which... If you want to read that, that's totally your prerogative. I tend, I prefer not to do that. But nonetheless, he does get some good quotes and some good insights sometimes. And this one comes from Frank Bush, the linebacker's coach, who said he doesn't expect the team to play Kiko Alonso any less in coverage than what he did last year. And Kiko, I thought, defended the run pretty well on Friday night. But his work in pass coverage is still horrendous as you watch him try to outflank Christian McCaffrey with a two-way go. He's never going to win that matchup. And sure, most linebackers won't. But Kiko doesn't have the change of direction skill to stay in phase with a player like Christian McCaffrey or even a slider running back that's not as fast and as quick. I mean, week one, these guys are going to see Deion Lewis and they're going to have to get ready to roll for that contest right away because the the Titans will be able to spread the Dolphins linebackers out and really, really hammer them in the short passing game in that aspect. So get that fixed. Get this whole entire coaching staff going on the same page. Get these penalties cleaned up. We'll probably see a game plan on the Saturday night game in Baltimore and you hope there's a little bit more effectiveness just for the sake of the Dolphins fan base that apparently is already losing its mind over what has happened through two games so far. But nonetheless, it is the preseason. These results are irrelevant. Individual evaluations are what it for or what, are what it is for. And, We've gotten some good and some bad. That's the case for every team in the preseason. But you look across the entire league, and that's the case for most teams, save for a few franchises like the New England Patriots, for instance, who just saw Tom Brady dominate, as he always does. But nonetheless, you look at like Philadelphia, and they couldn't get anything going with their Super Bowl champion quarterback, Nick Foles. So it's it's, like I said, it's a grain of salt. It's preseason. Don't look too much into it. Luckily, we only have two more of these to go, one really serious contest, and we'll get to that later in the week. But as for now... We are just three weeks away from the Dolphins' season opener, so we'll debunk some myths and finish up the podcast on the other side. Locked on Dolphins podcast at Winkle NFL at Locked on Fins. Circling back to the coaching and scheming and planning aspect of the last segment, talking about the Dolphins' lack of vertical passing game and how some folks are pretty concerned over it on Twitter as well as in the Dolphins stratosphere and Yeah, they didn't go down the field very much in a preseason contest, but I wanted to bring you guys back to 2016, the last time Ryan Tannehill was healthy and on a football field for Adam Gaze and this Miami Dolphins offense. They were the second highest big play percentage football team in the NFL, according to a website that I forget right now, but you can find it by typing in 2016 big play percentage. Miami Dolphins had the biggest combination of big runs and big passes. Kenny Stills caught nine touchdown passes that season, eight of which came from 24-plus yards away. Jakeem Grant scored two touchdowns last year. They both came outside of the red zone. Albert Wilson does that on the regular. Mike Sicky did it down in college at Penn State. So this offense has a big play element inside of it. They just haven't unveiled it yet. So really just show your patience. Settle down. It'll come once the regular season gets here. They're not going to unload the bag in a preseason contest. So just remember that. And also a funny tweet that I saw on Twitter on Saturday, I believe it was, talking about Ryan Tannehill's game And, and going back into my thread, which I posted up on my timeline at Wingfield NFL. You can find every Ryan Tannehill throw or drop back from that game against Carolina. And somebody replied to one of the tweets saying that Tannehill's been fine between the 20s in his career, but he really sucks in the red zone. Where they need him most. I found that very funny because in 2016, no quarterback in the NFL had a higher passer rating in the red zone than Ryan Tannehill. And you go all the way back to 2006, so taking in over 10 years of quarterback play, Ryan Tannehill is second only to Peyton Manning in NFL red zone passer rating metrics across the league. So, He's more than good in that area. He's fantastic in that area. Takes care of the football, is usually on time, throws it away when he doesn't have anything there, will take points, but he'll also get in the end zone. And that's one thing that Adam Gaze really excels at is creating plans down near the goal line To get touchdowns, we saw it with Jarvis Landry last year, nine touchdowns. Over half of those came within five yards. All of them came within 10 yards. So they can create plans to get guys open down there. You just can't get yourself in second and goal from the 16-yard line and expect this offense to have success. All right, guys, I am at the Oregon Coast right now on vacation. I'm going to go enjoy that. We will have podcasts for you throughout the entire course of the week. I'll record here live from the Oregon Coast and get you guys caught up on everything you need to know, Miami Dolphins football version. And that will close out this edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check out the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts for all your local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Follow me on Twitter at @NFL. Follow the show at LockedOnFins and keep up to date on our Daily Dolphins blog at LockedOnDolphins.com. You guys have a great rest of your night. We'll talk to you again tomorrow for another edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football.